And if you were with us last week, you made it through one of the most difficult and potentially awkward chapters in the Bible, Genesis 19, as we took a look at it specifically from the angle of biblical prophecy. And we thought that that chapter was just so nice, we needed to do it twice, which is what we're going to do this evening. Hang with me and I'll explain. Jesus said that in the season of history, just before the rapture of the church, one of the signs would be a cultural climate just like the days of Lot. So last week, we took some time to dig into that prophecy and figure out what happened during the days of Lot that Jesus was referring to and how might that connect to what's going on in the world today. And if you missed it, I encourage you to listen or watch online. You will not be bored, I promise. But this week, as I said, I wanna go back and look at Genesis 19 one more time and we're gonna finish the chapter today. And you might be thinking, are you out of your mind, Jeff? You should be racing to get away from all of that awkwardness. But, but hang with me, because there's, be, there's gonna be a little bit more awfulness from Lot, unbelievably, even more. But there's also gonna be something incredibly encouraging and incredibly comforting for you and I that we haven't talked about yet. So I'm gonna highlight a few things in the text we read last week. We're just gonna sort of blast through it, the first 26 verses, and then we'll get into the rest of the chapter. So let's begin together. Genesis 19, verse one. We read, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So as we mentioned last week, Jesus has stayed behind with Abraham to chat for a little bit, and the two angels who were with Jesus have gone on ahead to the city of Sodom. And, and I want to take just a minute to go into a little bit more detail about why Jesus did not accompany the angels into the city of Sodom. These verses are going to be on your outline. In the book of Psalms, it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart... Another translation would say, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Would you underline those words, not hear, not hear? In other words, here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, if I hold on to sin, if I refuse to turn away from it, even when the Lord convicts me of it, even when the Lord reveals to me that it's sin, if I continue to cherish and cling to that sin, the Lord will no longer respond to my prayers. He will not fellowship with me because I cannot embrace the Lord and embrace sin at the same time. That is why the Lord Jesus does not enter Sodom because it's a city full of people who have rejected God and his ways and instead have made the decision to cherish, to love and to cling to their sin. And I know this can sound absolutely shocking because if you were raised in the church, you were probably taught that every single prayer is heard by God and every prayer is equal. And while the Lord obviously does hear every prayer, the Bible does not say that the Lord responds to every prayer. In fact, I'll give you two more examples from Scripture, also on your outlines. In his first epistle, Peter told the men of the church to love their wives with, quote, understanding and, quote, honor. And then he says why they should do that. That your prayers may not be hindered. Underline that word, hindered. The Bible's very clear. Peter is telling the men of the church, listen, if you're not treating your wife in a godly way, the Bible says that your prayers will be hindered. They will not be effective. Why? Because your wife is a daughter of the Lord as well. And guess what? If you are married to my daughter and you're not treating her right and you show up at my house asking for favors, you are not going to find me inclined to help you out because you're mistreating my daughter. That's the idea here. And then also in the book of James, we're told... Confess your trespasses, underline confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, underline healed. In other words, here's what James is saying. He's saying get right with Jesus. If you're not walking with him, if you're in sin, get right with Jesus. Why? He goes on to say because the effective fervent prayer of a what? A righteous man avails much. Underline that word righteous. If you're walking in unrighteousness, refusing to deal with your sin, then your prayers will not avail. That means they will not accomplish very much. 
stating plainly that there is a difference in the way the Lord responds to the prayers of a righteous man and an unrighteous man. There's a difference between the way the Lord responds to the prayers of a man who's honoring his wife and the man who is not. There's a difference between the way the Lord responds and listens to the prayers of a person who is walking with him and the prayers of a person that is embracing sin instead. There's a difference. The Bible says it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now please understand me. It's not that the Lord leaves you. On the contrary, Jesus himself said that he'll never leave us and never forsake us. It's that we will find ourselves praying, we will find ourselves reaching out to God, and we will find only what seems and feels like silence and emptiness and the complete lack of response. We will have no feeling, no sense of the Lord's presence because he will not be responding to us. And this is gonna be the Lord's way of warning us that we're in a place of danger, like a little warning light on your car's dashboard. This is not God punishing us. This is not God threatening us with keeping us out of heaven or taking away our salvation. That's not what we're talking about. Our sin was paid for on the cross. Even the sin that we're stubbornly holding on to, even that sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross. But the Lord will do this in our lives because he looks upon us and he says, I love you. I love you. And I know that if you continue to cling onto that sin, it's going to wreak destruction in your life. It's gonna do deep and lasting damage to your marriage, to your children, to your family, to your future, and to your testimony. And because I love you, I cannot allow you to keep moving through life as though everything is okay when it's not. I cannot respond to your prayers. I cannot fellowship with you. We cannot hang out as though everything in your life is fine when it's not. The Lord says, because I love you, I can't let you think everything is okay when it's not. So I'm gonna stop responding to you to turn on this warning light in your spiritual life so that I'll get your attention. The Lord loves us. Our sin is paid for, all of it. But the Lord does not want to see sin wreck our lives in the here and now. And so he gives us this warning to try and pull us back from the edge before we do damage that is too deep and too lasting to ourselves and to those that we love. So make a note of this. The Lord will stop responding to my prayers if I stubbornly and unrepentantly cling to sin. He does this because he loves me and cannot allow me to believe that everything is okay when sin is destroying my life. Now let me say this. There are people, and you might be one of them, who when that warning light comes on on their dashboard, they just say, it's all a scam, man. It's just the manufacturer trying to get more money out of you, even when it's something that does need your attention. And what ends up happening? Well, eventually things get bad enough that they do have to take the car to the shop and the damage ends up being worse because they waited to confront the problem. And so the cost is far, far greater. Likewise, when the Lord turns on a warning light in your spiritual life or mine, it would be unwise to say, it's a scam, man. It's just the Lord trying to keep me from having fun. We would be wise to confront the problem, the sin, and the issue immediately so that we don't have to deal with greater damage later on. We keep reading in Genesis 19, and it says, And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, the two angels, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground and he said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. The idea is we want to rape them. <laughs> 
So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. In other words, they're virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. We talked all about this last week. It's just as bad as it sounds. And they, the men of the city, said, stand back. Then they said, speaking of Lot, this one came in to stay here. He came into our city, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, the angels, and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you may have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Just to clear something else up, Lot doesn't have two sets of daughters. He doesn't have two virgin daughters and two who are married. In the original text, the idea is that both of his daughters were betrothed to be married. They were engaged, but in that culture, that meant that they were off the market, so to speak. They were already considered married. The men they were marrying were considered to be sons-in-laws, but they hadn't had the wedding feast yet, and they hadn't consummated their marriages yet. That's what's going on. Verse 15 When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and then underline this phrase, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, please no, my lords. Indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. So Lot has just been miraculously saved from a city that's about to be destroyed by God, by fire. And Lot says to the angel, the mountain? You want me to flee to the mountain? Something bad might happen to me up there. Can I go to that that little city over there, the one that's way closer? Verse 21, and he, the angel, said to him, see, I favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry and escape there, and then underline, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And we spoke last week about how that's a picture of the church and the rapture. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. As we mentioned last week, the implication is that Lot's wife was not a believer. The essence of the text is that she looked back longingly, grieving over her loss of the thing that had her heart and soul and affections, the city and culture of Sodom. And just one other quick note, very interestingly, we know from archeology span where Sodom and Gomorrah were, where this plain was. Do you remember when Lot went there at first, the reason that he chose to go in that direction when he split from Abraham? It was because it was very lush and very green. Do you remember that? And he thought this was the best place to raise cattle and become prosperous. The place that archeology span tells us that used to be that plain where Sodom and Gomorrah was located is at the southern end of the Dead Sea right now. 
And if you go there to this day, it literally looks like an atomic bomb went off there. There's just no life at all and just this massive amount of salt in the Dead Sea, meaning that nothing can live in that body of water. Very, very interesting. And now we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. So that little town that Lot asked to go to instead of going up to the mountains turns out not to be a safe place. And so after a very short period of time, Lot says to his family, you know what, guys, I've got a great idea. Let's flee to the mountains. So make a note of this. God's instructions are always for our good, even when they seem inconvenient. God's instructions are always for our good, even when they seem inconvenient. As we mentioned last week, the the whole tale of Sodom and Gomorrah recorded here in Genesis 19 is a picture of the end times. We know that because Jesus told us that when he was on the earth. Lot's deliverance is a picture of the church being rescued in the rapture before God's judgment is poured out on the world. And Sodom and the cities of the plain are a picture of the world, the world system that hates God, that loves evil, that loves self above all else, the world system that is ultimately ruled by Satan and is destined for destruction. And God calls you and I to a higher way of living. He calls us up the same way that he called Lot to flee from the world that was being destroyed. He calls us to live free from that world system as much as we can while still living on the earth. He calls us to the mountain, the place where we get what we need in life from him. The mount of instruction where the law was given. The mount of Calvary where we find grace and die to ourselves over and over again God calls us up and yet so often we hear his invitation to step up and live in that higher way and respond and our response is just like Lot we say "Uh, can I just stay down here can I can I just go over there and do that I mean it's not like I'm I'm not in Sodom it's just a little town it's just a a little compromise just a little bit of the world in my life. And Lord, only weird people hang out in the mountains. I mean, only weird people live completely separate from everybody else. And and that's just not me. I'm, I'm not a mountain man. I'm a city guy. And we don't want to get too radical in the way we live. And then inevitably we find out, as Lot did, that all those little compromises ended up being unsafe. They didn't cause us to end up in a safe place. And we see those little compromises that we made. Every time we turn down God's call to live higher, we find those little compromises beginning to affect our kids. And we see them begin to affect our marriage and, and the way we think. And suddenly we say, man, I gotta get to the mountain. I gotta meet with Jesus. And we're always better off just accepting that invitation from Jesus in the first place. Every single day to take some time away, sit down in a chair with his word, go for a walk and pray, pray in our car with your eyes open (laughs) and live higher, accept that invitation from the Lord to seek him and get what we need from him. We keep reading, it says, and he, Lot, and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, hey, our father is old and There's no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. So this is what's going on. Lot's two daughters are with him up in a cave and there's there's no other men around. Everyone they know, this whole plain of Shinar has been destroyed. And so, so they say, well, apparently this is everyone in the world that's dead. Everyone in the world is dead. And so they begin to worry about how they're gonna have kids and carry on their family line. And I just want you to notice the insanity of their concern given the circumstances. They've just been, like Lot, miraculously saved from God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
they had seen the smoke rise. They would have seen from a distance the complete supernatural destruction of the cities. They would have seen the angels. They would have felt the hand of the angels grabbing their hand and pulling them to the place of safety. But now after a few weeks or months, they're thinking, we gotta come up with a plan to have some babies. There's no men around. As though this is a problem that is too big for the Lord to solve. He sent angels to save you from heaven's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But this would be too difficult of a problem for the Lord to solve. You've seen the miraculous, you've experienced it yourself, but now you're saying, what are, what are we gonna do? And nowhere in their thinking is, we should seek the Lord on this. And we're very often quick to think just the same way because we were dead in our sins. We were completely separated from God. There was nothing we could do to repair our relationship with him. We were destined for eternity, separated from God in total darkness. We were hopeless, completely and utterly lost. And yet, and yet, the Lord worked a miracle and he saved us. No situation, no circumstance, no problem, no addiction, no challenge that you or I will encounter in this life will ever require a greater miracle than the miracle of salvation that God has already worked in the life of the believer. There's nothing that you or I will ever face that will require a greater miracle than what God has already done in our lives. Let me say that again and make a note of it. No situation will ever require a greater miracle than the miracle of salvation that God has already worked in the life of the believer. There's nothing you'll ever face that should make you say that might be too difficult for the Lord because you've already experienced a greater miracle than what that thing is. So when difficult challenges arise, we don't, we don't panic. We don't lose our heads. We don't give in to fear and throw around words like impossible or too difficult. We say, I've already seen the Lord do greater miracles than this situation requires. I've already seen it. I've already experienced it. But tragically, these two daughters of Lot have extremely short memories and they don't remember what the Lord has just done for them recently. And so they give in to fear and they come up with an awful, awful solution to their problem. They say in verse 32, come let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, he was tanked. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed I lay with my father last night, let us make him drink wine tonight also and you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. What a tragedy, what a tragedy. And last week we talked about the fact that if we're honest, the, the only explanation, and I use the term loosely, for Lot offering his two virgin daughters to the men of the city to be gang raped is that Lot had become so immersed in the wicked culture of the city that, that, that in some way it actually made sense to him as a solution. It seemed sensible. And in this text, we see the same dynamic at work. Lot allowed his family, including his two daughters, to become immersed in the wicked culture of Sodom. And as that took place over the years, increasingly evil and perverse things became normalized. They ceased to be scandalous in Lot's household. They ceased to be shocking. They just became normal. And even though Lot knew that these things were not right and not godly, he, he didn't do anything with that conviction. He just said, I understand. We don't want to be that weird family in Sodom. So I know it doesn't seem right, but you know, everybody else is doing it. And he just tuned out the Holy Spirit and unintentionally taught his daughters to do the same thing. He taught his daughters to not listen to the conviction of God within their spirits. 
to the point where their thinking also became so messed up that a scheme as twisted as this actually seemed like a good and reasonable idea to them. That's how messed up their thinking had become. There's so much we could talk about here as Christians and as parents. And I pray that the Lord would give us wisdom for each of us to hear what we need to hear from this passage today. Do you think that if all those years ago, when Lot first chose to move towards Sodom, do you think that all those years ago, if he'd been able to see how this would all unfold, that he would have chosen a different path for his family? Unquestionably, unquestionably, how did it all end? With everything he owned destroyed, his wife dying as an unbeliever, and his two daughters using him to impregnate them. His sons-in-laws being not believers and dying in the city as well. But instead of thinking about what was right for his family and for spiritual health, he chose what he thought was the most prosperous path. Which lifestyle, which direction, which choices are gonna allow me to make the most money? What's gonna give me the most influence? What's gonna give me the greatest status in society? What's gonna end in the most people admiring me or thinking much of me? And that's how he made his decision. That's how he ended up in Sodom. He prioritized the wrong things. So make a note of this. If we could see the future effects of compromising with sin, sin would lose all of its appeal. None of us, none of us would ever sin if we could see what the results were when we were being given the choice. We always believe a lie. That's why we sin. We believe this is gonna produce a better result if I sin than if I do this God's way. This is gonna produce a quicker result, a greater result. But if we could see where it really goes, sin wouldn't be that appealing. Verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll recognize the names of those two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites. They are two groups who would go on to be perpetual thorns in the flesh of God's people. Constant enemies, always either fighting with Israel or trying to draw them into sin and worshiping pagan gods. And it all goes back to Lot's decision to not hold the line spiritually in his family. Oh, we don't want to be, we don't want to be that weird family that doesn't watch that show. Hold the line. All the other kids in their class are doing it. We, we don't want our kids to feel out of place. Hold the line. Man, if we take a stand on that, people are gonna think we're, we're religious nuts. Hold the line. Man, if I, if I confront my spouse or, or my son or my daughter about that issue, then they'll think I'm being judgmental and that might damage the whole relationship. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. I know that everybody, including our kids, is an individual who must and will make their own choices, but dads and moms, we have also got to make the decisions about what culture our family is going to embrace. And if we could see the outcome of embracing the culture of the world instead of embracing the culture of the kingdom, it wouldn't be a difficult decision at all. We wouldn't wrestle with it. One road leads to life and blessing, the other leads to death and curses. It's that simple. One to blessing, one to curses. And we're thinking, what if people think I'm weird? One road leads to life, one leads to death. What if people think I'm strange? Hold the line. And if Lot were here today, he would tell you the same thing because he didn't hold the line in his family. And when he was finally able to see the danger, his sons-in-law wouldn't even take him seriously. Oh, now you're a spiritual guy, Lot. Suddenly you're concerned now about listening to the Lord. Come on, 
come on, get real. Calm down, old man. If we won't lead our families in serving the Lord day to day, dads especially, if we won't lead them day to day in following Jesus, why would we expect them to suddenly take our spiritual advice and counsel seriously when we see real danger coming? They won't. They won't. So hold the line. Hold the line now. In the New Testament, we get a very interesting little bit of commentary on Genesis 19 and Lot. It's provided for us by the Apostle Peter. It's on your outlines. In his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2, we read this. We'll read it and then we'll unpack it. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, that word hell is literally Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered, underline, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that underlying righteous man dwelling among them tormented his underlying righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, and then underline the rest of it. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The word temptations is literally the word trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. There's a lot there, but there's two things I want us to notice. Firstly, the point of that whole section of scripture is laid out in the final part that we read. Peter wants us to understand that God knows how to deliver those who belong to him while simultaneously judging those who have rejected him. Write this down. In other words, God knows how to miraculously save those who are his when he pours out judgment on those who have rejected him. God knows how to do that. The Lord does not allow those who are his to be harmed as collateral damage when he judges those who have rejected him. That's what the rapture of the church is all about. God rescuing those who are his from the earth before he judges the earth. And Peter goes on to give us a few more Old Testament examples of other times when God has done this, when he's managed to judge the wicked without harming those who belong to him. He mentions first Genesis 6, the whole strange fallen angel Nephilim thing, Peter says God took the fallen angels who participated in that and he locked them up in Tartarus, the deepest, darkest place in Hades to hold them for judgment for a later time. God didn't blow up everything. He dealt with those fallen angels and gave the people of the earth time to repent. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to our study on Genesis 6. Then Peter points out that when the world did not repent, the Lord found a way to judge the earth while still miraculously preserving the only eight people on the planet who did not reject the Lord, Noah and his family. God found a way to wipe out the entire human race except for the eight who belonged to him. God saved them. And then finally, Peter mentions what we've been studying the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the miraculous deliverance of Lot from that judgment. All the cities on that plain were destroyed, but those who belonged to the Lord were saved. And Peter says, all of those things prove this, that God knows how to save those who are his when the time comes for him to judge those who have rejected him. That's Peter's whole point. And God is gonna do the same thing when he comes for his church in the rapture before he pours out his judgment on the earth in the form of the great tribulation. Revelation four, the church goes up. Revelation six, wrath comes down. And in every language, every culture, the number four comes before the number six. That's the first thing we need to understand. Now let's talk about the most shocking thing in that passage of scripture. I had you underline it because Peter wants you to get this so much. He uses the same word, three times in one sentence. And incredibly, the word that Peter uses to describe Lot is the word righteous. Righteous Lot? 
Are you kidding me? If you are not shocked by that, then you have forgotten a few things already. So just to recap, here's a list of some of Lot's failures that are recorded just in this chapter of the Bible. He fully immersed himself in the culture of an incredibly wicked city. Pretty much his entire social circle was involved in the wicked practices of Sodom. When the two angels were threatened by the men of the city, Lot offered up his two virgin daughters to be gang raped. Lot's family had almost no spiritual values, which resulted in him allowing his daughters to marry non-believers. He lived a life of compromise to such a degree that when he tried to warn his sons-in-law that God's judgment was coming, he had no credibility and they wouldn't take him seriously. When the angels told Lot to hurry up and flee the city because judgment was coming and God was going to destroy it, verse 16 says Lot lingered. Uh, uh. Do I really need to go? When the angels told Lot to flee to the safety of the mountains, he complained that it was too far and asked if he could go somewhere else instead. He lived a whole life with his wife and she was not a believer. Lot's failure to raise his family to follow the Lord resulted in his two virgin daughters getting him drunk so that he would impregnate them, producing sons that would grow on to produce two peoples who would be perpetual enemies of Israel. And yet Peter tells us that being surrounded by sin troubled Lot's righteous soul every day. So why didn't he leave? I don't know. Why don't we leave? Righteous Lot. How can this be? It's very simple actually. It's the central doctrine of Christianity. It's the way we're saved from our sins and made righteous. It's this simple. Righteousness is imputed. Righteousness is imputed. That means that righteousness is assigned to us. It is ascribed to us by Jesus. The righteousness that we need to meet God's standard, the righteousness we need in order to be able to stand in the presence of God, the righteousness we need in order to have a whole relationship with the Lord is not our own righteousness because we're not righteous. We're not good enough. The Lord calls our attempts to be righteous filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. The righteousness we need, the righteousness that every believer receives is the righteousness of Jesus. In what's known as the divine exchange, Jesus took our sins and in exchange, he imputed his righteousness to us. So write this down. Every believer receives the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Every believer receives the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Our righteousness has no connection to our behavior. None. How do we receive the righteousness of Jesus? By simple faith. The Lord reveals to us that we need saving. And then he asks us, do you want me to save you? And here's where our incredible contribution comes into the equation. Are you ready? Here's our contribution to the process of salvation. We answer Yes, Lord, I want you to save me. Please do it. That's it. That's our entire contribution to the process of salvation. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is God, that he is who he claimed to be, and that he saved you from death, and that he's the only one who could save you from death, then the Bible says you'll be saved. And the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you, making you as righteous in the eyes of the Father as Jesus is. That's a staggering statement, that when he looks at you, He sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ. That's what this means. And in my mind, if I'm honest, my first response is perhaps like some of yours. Why'd you save Lot, Lord? I mean, he's not living for you. He's not serving you. 
And he's been like that for years. In fact, as far back as the Bible tells us, he's, he's never really had any interest in you. Does he really deserve saving? But that's, that's not how the Lord thinks. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Because there are a lot of people that I care about and love very, very deeply who right now are living a whole lot like Lot. And I know that the same is true for many of you. That there are people you love and care about who are not walking with the Lord right now. You know they've made a profession of faith. You know that they embraced the gospel of grace. You know they were baptized. You know the Lord had their heart at one time, but now they're just, they're just blowing it. They've become immersed in Sodom, the culture of our world. Their best friends don't love the Lord. They're not walking in wisdom. And you can see the destruction in their lives from miles away. And it breaks your heart. And maybe you wonder, are they saved? Are they going to make it to heaven? Are they going to be taken in the rapture? Back in verse 16, in this picture of the rapture, the angel grabs the believer's hand. Why? That verse tells us it was because, quote, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. Not because Lot deserved it. Not because he was a good guy. But because he believed. Underneath all those bad decisions, he did believe. And when he believed, he moved from being an object of God's wrath to an object of God's mercy. And if you have someone you care about who still believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord but seems a million miles away from him right now, man, take hope. Take hope. We still pray for them and we still want to see them change because we don't want to see them suffer through the pains and problems that sin will bring into their life. And we don't want to see them waste their life. We don't want to see them enter heaven empty-handed, missing out on eternal rewards. We don't want anyone to follow Lot's example. But know this, if you have a loved one who does believe that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead to save us from our sins, the Bible says they're going up. They're going up because God is merciful. My hope for my own salvation is not my righteousness. My hope is in the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And the same is true for every believer I know. What saves us and what keeps us saved is the work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. And to make that clear, the Lord gave us things like Genesis 19, a picture of the rapture where the Lord pulls out someone we think is hopeless. Someone completely perverted and lost. Because of this incredible chapter of the Bible, I can ask you, are you as bad as Lot? Would any of you say, man, I'm, I'm way worse than Lot. I am constantly pimping out my children to be raped and I've impregnated three of my own kids. I, I think we can all say, I'm not who I should be. I'm not where I should be in my spiritual walk. I've got problems and, and I struggle, but I'm a lot better than Lot. I'm not that bad. And, and that's the point. That's the point. If the righteousness of Jesus could cover Lot's sins, it can cover yours and it can cover mine. And by the way, it can cover even more than Lot's sins. For those who believe and confess Jesus, there's no sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover and take care of. When the crowd asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, underline this on your outlines. Jesus said to them, this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That you believe in him whom he sent. That's how you're counted by God as righteous. Not by the work that you do, but by the work Jesus has done for you on your behalf. In 2 Timothy 2.13, in my opinion, one of the most staggering verses in all of Scripture. 
Paul writes this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And who Paul is talking about there is the believer. Because when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God comes into your life and makes a home in your life. You become the temple of God, the temple of His Spirit. And what the Bible is saying here, it's saying even if you go through a season where you lose some of that faith, God won't deny you because He's still in you. And if He denied you, He'd be denying Himself. And He's never, ever going to do that. A couple of weeks ago, I, I challenged us to spend some time searching the Scriptures and considering the question, does the idea of a cultural Christian, a casual Christian, a lukewarm Christian, actually appear as a concept anywhere in the Bible? And I wanted us to really, really think on that idea. Because in a good way as believers, I, I want us to have a godly fear of the reality that almost everywhere in the Bible that it talks about following God, it talks about being a disciple of His. It doesn't give two categories, a devoted follower of Jesus and a casual Christian. It doesn't do that. Except for one or two very small places in here in Genesis 19 with the example of Lot. And my intention in pointing this out is that we would all realize that none of us should plan on being casual Christians. That's a bad plan for life. Let me just say that. Okay, well then I'm just going to be a lukewarm Christian like Lot. Really? You want to experience the sort of things in your life that Lot experienced in his life? The literal destruction of his marriage? Literally? The complete collapse of his family, his daughters caught up in perversity. That sound like a good plan for you? Well, then I'll just live it up like Lot. Go for it. Maybe you'll have a life as wonderful as Lot's. None of us should have that plan because cultural Christians reproduce cultural Christians. Casual Christians raise casual Christians. And before you know it, the church and the family that you have built is the Laodicean church described in Revelation 3. The church that thought they were saved but really weren't. The church that had to be reminded that Jesus was the, actually the creator. The church that had to be reminded that Jesus was actually the only way to be saved because they didn't really believe it. Because casual Christianity doesn't really get passed down very many generations. It simply turns into non-believers very, very quickly. So please know that's no way to live your life right now. And, and even though you may be saved, a casual faith will doom the future of your family. It really will. And it'll bring chaos and destruction into your family now. But the hope we have for ourselves and those we love is this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved just like Lot. Thank God for the imputed righteousness of Jesus that is ours through Christ Jesus. In conclusion, let me say this. Hold the line. Hold the line in your life, in your marriage, and in your family. When God calls you to go higher, to live higher, accept his invitation. Don't wait to find out that staying where you are is not a safe place to be. Accept the Lord's invitation. If you've lost your spiritual sensitivity, ask the Lord to renew it. And the way you keep it renewed, the way you keep your spiritual sensitivity is by obeying the Lord. When the Lord says, hey, not that. That's not gonna lead to life. If there's something in your life you need to change in order to heed God's call to live higher, then do it. Do it. Don't wait for the consequences to hit your life so that you can wish that you had listened to the Lord earlier. And for those who have wandered from the Lord, but, but you know they still believe in the Lord, take hope, take hope. They're saved the same way we are by the imputed righteousness of Jesus. But stay in prayer for them because we don't want to see them waste their lives. We don't want to see them experience consequences 
that they don't need to. We'd much rather see them be blessed. Be blessed. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of a train wreck like Lot. Thank you for the reminder that we're saved by your grace and we're made righteous by your righteousness. It's not our own. Thank you that you are enough and you've been enough for each of us, Lord, to save us, to make us your own, to put us on the path to life and blessing. And Lord, we ask that we would accept your invitation to go higher, to live higher, to hold the line in our families and in our own lives, Lord, that we might walk in the way of blessing and life. Lord, we don't want to see our lives or the lives of those we care about filled with the unnecessary consequences of loving the world more than we love you. So Jesus, renew our sensitivity to your spirit this evening. And Lord, if there's anyone among us who's headed toward disaster, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying to us this evening and the courage to respond and to change and to change course, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us that you love us that you only want good for us, Jesus. We love you for it, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.